It's January 24th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines, and we'll start out here with a couple Frank Kendall, Secretary of the Air Force, stories. First one, Kendall warns against imitating Chinese hypersonic weapons effort from uh, Defense Daily. And he, the quote here from him is, we don't have the same target set that they're worried about, so we have to think about what's most cost-effective for us, Kendall said. And so I'd like to understand this a little bit better because, of course, both sides have ships and, you know, bases and a mix of fixed and moving targets and all of that stuff. But I guess his main point is, like, we'll probably be in their littorals, right? So, you know, they have maneuvering targets at sea or, like, potentially island bases that don't really have very much time to react or, like, the less time to react for, the, for like, a base on Guam, the better for China, right? So... Uh, where the harder it is to to knock out a missile. But um, yeah, I, it's interesting here. Kendall's, we, we reported on Kendall kind of talking about this in the past. Um, I don't know if it's going to really affect Arrow. Arrow's had some troubles. Maybe that will give him some ammunition to cut it. But the other services might keep going ahead. What, what were your thoughts on this one? What, what do you think he was really talking about with that, that target set issue? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I got a little bit confused when he said, the reason that the, the Chinese would field hypersonic weapons uh, is because of the, the ballistic missile threat. Um, I mean, there's no way, I think every country, every nuclear country like Russia and China know that, you know, going after every single ICBM silo in the U.S. is a, is a great way to just like, you know, totally get rid of all your missiles and not achieve and not like not impact at all, like the ability for for us to, to counter respond, you know, so. I didn't understand that part of it. I mean, to me, the China definitely wants to show that they can strike, right? Like they can get past any missile defense systems. Like they want to, they want to have that capability because there's a, some power in that. There's a lot of leverage in that. But I mean, I see their focus on hypersonics much more, and yeah, taking out aircraft carriers that might have advanced defensive systems, taking taking out bases like you know Guam or different other you know bases that might that we might stand up in the area. So. So yeah, for me, it was a lot more about the their their area of their their region than uh, worrying about the the U.S. Uh, ballistic missiles that uh, that might come their way, which that would be a whole different combat situation. So yeah, that was a little bit confusing, but I definitely agree with him on. Yeah, I think it's very easy to get carried away and say like, you know, this happened a lot in in some of the some of the battles with uh, you know ISIS and stuff where. Commander is one of the best weapons, right? Because I mean, it makes sense. You're your commander. You want to get the best effect. You want to achieve the mission. So you want the best weapon. And so sometimes we'd have less capable, like non-JDM type weapons that you could still put on target. They weren't as accurate. They required a little more skill from the pilot. But basically, the commanders didn't want to didn't want to use those. So they always wanted the best best weapons. And so I think you could get in a situation here where everybody wants to use the hypersonic. Because it'll, you know, guarantee them the ability to maybe hit that target, or, you know, not not be disrupted by some laser or some other kind of defensive thing. But you have to kind of balance that against the cost. And so, I think that's kind of Kendall's point here: is let's not get carried away. Let's figure out where they make the best, the most sense. Uh, where do we need to spend the money and you know, build up some capability there? But, you know, not not try to go like too far with it. Yeah, it seems like don't pre-commit to like massive production runs and it seems like maybe they were kind of you know hinting towards that and assuming success but you know i it, one one part of me hopes that if they build it robustly enough and if they learn over time then maybe they can bring the unit cost down we don't really know what the cost effectiveness is because we don't really have like a functioning <laughs> you know like maneuverable hypersonic missile for conventional means yet right yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I do think the materials will probably always be a little bit more exotic, right? And the engines will probably be, you know, probably have some additional complexity, ramjet or scramjets or, or what have you. So there, there you could probably always say that there'll, there'll probably be a, dif a, a decent differential between a conventional missile and a hypersonic missile. But yeah, no, you're right. We don't know. We don't know what that initial cost point is and what that learning curve will look like after you get through you know, 10 or 20 runs of, of, a, of a missile and you're buying it a decent quantity. I, I think your point is dead on, though, is once you reach that point, the one thing we can't do is once we get the arrow on board or maybe we get some, we field some other hypersonics, is you can't spin that industrial base up to a point where 
they're now getting used to building X number a year. And then all of a sudden, like one year, you're like cutting them down to nothing. And then the next year you're back up to like, okay, we want to restock again, get a bunch. Like you're going to have to find that steady state to build up the inventory to the level you need it to. Um, but, you know, some of the other weapons programs, you really have jerked the, the industrial base around and kind of like, you know, think we can ebb and flow every year from year to year. And really it's hard to do that. So Yeah, the system seems like it's kind of averse to concurrency between RDT&E and procurement. But this almost feels like one of the times where you might want that at a low level because like the utility of these hypersonics is probably going to be in having a good amount of them to get them to that cost quantity um, trade-off space there for you. So, you know, it seems like, you know, Elon Musk, when he went out and was making uh, the Starlinks, he was like, you know, production is like a thousand times harder than building a prototype. And you really need to feed back those production learnings into, into the way that you prototype. Because if all they really care about is like, well, let's just get this thing to work, you know, and, and pass the test, no matter what we have to do, right? add more exotic things and create complexity to get through the test. But then that creates, you know, difficult procurement or like production problems. You know, it feels like concurrency in this case made sense. And of course, Bernie Schriever was a big advocate of concurrency on the Atlas ICBM. And so, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, there's some kind of acquisition dogmas, but like sometimes some things, you know, need their context and to go about things in, in the way that makes sense for the system itself. Yeah, you won't get any argument from me. I'm a big concurrency fan because I think the amount of learning you get while you're going through testing, um, you know, and doing that doing that testing early too, that you can feed back into the RDT&E process is huge. So, so yeah, I'm, I, think, uh, I think not doing it just is like a great way to extend a program out into, you know, just adding a ton of extra time so you know if you don't have any adversaries and you're just like you have time is time is on your side that, that maybe you don't need concurrency but if you want to get something fielded and you want to you know learn and, and, and improve uh, at the fastest uh you know pace possible then i think you need, need some concurrency uh, the other one that uh kendall was talking about in the same article was advanced battle management system of course the air force's answer to jad c2 uh, for command and control but he, he said something that was actually pretty interesting here because I thought, you know, Kendall was pretty skeptical of ABMS to start. And I don't think they're going to get rid of the program. But what they but what he says here is, uh, quote, I think there is validity in the assumption, but we're going to have to figure out how to, that's going to get done. So he calls inc ABMS increment one and then the upcoming increment two. They're important uh, on the path to get towards operational capability, but they aren't it. So Kendall is kind of backing ABMS, but also kind of saying it's not ready. Um, we'll see kind of what comes out of that, right? Like as it got transferred over to the Rapid Capabilities Office, where most of ABMS did, um, they were kind of talking about uh, very specific capabilities, getting that uh, pod to translate, you know, data links from the F-35 and the F-22 was one of them. Uh, but, you know, if that's if that's all they're delivering, I guess you could call it a success like you delivered something that has functionality. But I'm not really sure how that gets towards the original vision of the Internet of Things for military or whether that was even like a coherent, I guess, vision. Maybe the, the vision was coherent, but like what's the steps to actually get there in a practical way? Right. So I actually think his quote may have been taken out of like context a little bit. Um for well, for one, he, he may think ABMS, you know, is does have a ways to go, and and it does. There's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I think you'll see it'll come out in like three phases, and those phases will probably go out to 2030 and beyond. So, but there's absolutely, you know, it's absolutely not true that building tactical cloud, um, building a tactical cloud network where you can, you know, you can bring data in that 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 is going to be operationally relevant. You can. You know, move that data quickly uh, to to the different systems that, that need to employ it, and 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 improve. You know, for one, improve commander situation awareness, but but more importantly, improve you know uh, you know targeting and, and you know delivering effects. So I yeah I, I I would definitely argue that that is not a critical capability. That um, you know what did he say? It's not you know we have to figure out what's going to be done. I think I think we know what needs to be done there. Is it complex? Is it is there a lot of work still? Yes. 
but I think there's a good, pretty good path towards that. I think what he was talking about was actually the ground moving target indication and error moving target indication uh, capability. And that's where I think he was saying JSTARS was really effective at that and that we're still trying to figure out the different ways that that service can be provided. So one of the ideas, right, was the space, space could do it. You know, you could, you could do that with different um, drones, you know, maybe, you know, super high altitude drones and different things. So, so I think he may have, that quote may have been about that and not so much ABMS as a whole, because it doesn't make any sense talking, comparing JSTARS to ABMS is not, that's not the, the accurate, that's not an accurate way of doing it. JSTARS did, you know, bring some data to the ground units, but JADC2 is much, much larger, like 10x larger than that. And the vision is much different. So I don't know. That's the only way that I could read that, but maybe he was talking about something else. Yeah, I I guess maybe that just kind of came out because ABMS was the the leg. <laughs> I guess it spun out of J Stars, right? The J Stars recap program. So, but Kendall did kind of seem pretty fond of J Stars himself. Um, he and he kind of mentioned that he had some some dealings in the early days of J Stars. I guess you know back in the '90s or the 2000s. So. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. Of course, ABMS is a complete reimagining of, of what that is and greatly expanded the scope. So, um, a lot more to come on ABMS, of course. <laughs> uh, so let's move on and we'll, we'll stick with Kendall here for the last one. Space Force is creating its own culture, but that will be tightly coupled with the Air Force from Space News. And so here, you know, Roper or not Roper, Kendall was kind of talking about Space Force as being a digital service. So the Space Force, we've been talking about this for a while, right? They want to be kind of like a digital native service, and it's not clear they they they're not saying all you know guardians will be coders, but they need to be at least able to to utilize those types of digital products. Uh, Kendall here says, I think that's a worthy goal. And that's one that the larger department has not caught up with yet and hasn't done as much as it could. So there is so there is an attempt to establish a unique culture in the Space Force, but he also wants to keep it tightly coupled to the Air Force as a whole. So I'm not really super clear what that means. Of course, the Space Force is very small. It's like 16,000 people, I think, compared to well over 2,000 200,000 in the Air Force as a whole. So they'll need to kind of share a lot of enterprise resources. They're going to kind of share AFRL, the HR functions, a lot of management systems, uh, the whole corporate process as well. Uh, but what what do you think, you know, he kind of means like, what's that? How do you have like a different culture, but then still be tightly coupled to, you know, the legacy old big Air Force, which might be overbearing in a way? <laughs> I think I can only read that one way, which is, uh, don't think you guys are too independent. Um, I, I'm in control. I, I run the service and, uh, and you guys, you know, don't forget that you guys are part of the air force. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of like a, a power statement to say, you know, that he is going to ultimately determine the budget, uh, you know, how the budget gets assigned. He's ultimately going to determine, you know, how the, you know, how the service operates. Cause he does have that train equip kind of, uh, kind of role. So yes, the Space Force is going to do some things differently, but they're never going to be able to get that far from this from from the Air Force. The, I do compare it though. I think the best comparison is actually the Navy and Marine Corps because for a really really long time, Marine Corps was, you know, very tightly coupled. Is probably the best way to say it, right? Like the Navy would figure out their budget priorities and they'd figure out some block of money for the Marine Corps, and that's what the Marine Corps would get. And so the Marine Corps, as I understand it, was always a little bit perturbed that they weren't kind of getting the share that that they wanted and so um and then i i don't know what happened behind the scenes but you know maybe i guess sometimes the navy would pull money back or something so i they didn't like it and so i think it was around 2000 i think it was 2013 Marine Corps actually got its own budget and so now they they have the ability they have a little bit more control over that not to say the navy secretary probably can't make some changes but they got more control of it and it wasn't as tightly coupled. So this is where I don't know where how the Space Force will be is how much leverage does he give, how much leeway does he give to General Raymond and to this new ass assistant secretary of the Air Force for, for space um, acquisition and aerospace integration. How much, how much, how much does he give him? Does he's like, 
you know, does he give him a bogey and he says, you figure out what's in that? Or does he say, you know, these buckets, I, you know, I think these are the right buckets and you can figure out the details or does he get down in the details? So I think, I think he's kind of making, just making the point that, you know, ultimately he makes the call on things and, uh, you know, space force can become digital, but, and that's great, but, uh, you know, he's ultimately the boss. Uh, certainly that's true. He's the secretary of the air force, but I guess his boss is the DepSec Def and the Secretary of Defense, right? So, um, but they're not—they're not, they're not going to be as involved in the acquisition decisions. Whereas Kendall is like, you know, a lifetime acquisition guy, and he knows it inside and out. So we can expect him to be fairly involved there. Next one we got is Enduro nabs a one billion dollar contract for anti-drone work with SOCOM from FedScoop. And so this will be done in various locations within and outside the continental U.S. over the next decade. And I guess that only translated into a $1 million um, obligation to that contract. But hopefully a lot more will be kind of coming for Enduro. They beat out 11 other bidders on this one. And so I've been actually pretty interested to see what would actually come from Palmer Lucky at at the Reagan Forum. He gave a talk and he said, I'm just going to quote it here. There was an event where we were testing our counter drone system against a bunch of other companies and we kicked everyone else's butts. We did way better than everyone else. We, we knocked everything out of the sky that was thrown our way. And he talked about a number of different ways that they, they were actually able to um, knock out uh, drones. So it, it's interesting. I was waiting to see what would actually come from that. And it looks like here it is. So again, we ha- we have like a large, it looks like IDIQ type contract. So um, not not clear how or whether others can really jump on this contract vehicle or not. But you know, here here we go. And it looks like you know one billion dollar ceiling. You know that's that's a pretty shocking number. But if they're able to kind of get towards twenty million dollars a year. Or even, or more, or $20 million over a couple of years, you know, that's really starting to kind of move the needle for them. Yeah, I honestly, this is like the biggest test case, and I'm excited to see where they go with it, because, you know, we've talked about, and I think there's been some, you know, good articles about as a service, like how far can DOD go with as a service um, providing a capability and some capabilities are never going to be as a service, right? We're not going to have nuclear weapons as a capability or, you know, we're not going to have uh, combat aircraft, you know, in the first island chain as a service. But but this, you know, this is a good example of, of kind of some of the areas where you can have sort of a warfighting capability as a service. And so, you know, the $1 billion, I am kind of curious about that too, about if other folks can use that. Sounds kind of big for SOCOM, but, but maybe... Maybe they have a lot of plans for that work in different places. Um, yeah, Andrew, definitely one of the things that must have been a huge part of them getting this contract is, and I got this from a different article, but kind of talking about the same, their same capability, is that they actually will maintain continuous system updates, develop and deploy new capability, and integrate best-in-class third-party sensors and effectors, future-proofing deployed systems at no additional cost to the customer. Um, so... That's pretty huge, right? Like the fact that you can say as a service, I, you know, I promise I will take down this class of, of, you know, of UASs and I'll figure out, I'll upgrade the system. I'll do what's necessary. Keep it up to date. You don't have to worry about anything. And that is really appealing. So I I hope this works out really well and then, you know, can scale to other areas uh, because, uh, you know, Andrew will definitely a step forward here. Uh, I did one, one other thing I noticed was that, um, They've made a they made a number of acquisitions this year. They bought out a, a drone maker in April, and then they bought um, uh, they bought another company I think in June, uh, some like machine vision company, um, and, and they got a four hundred fifty million dollar Series D round. Uh, so the company is worth four point roughly four point six billion now. So it's yeah, Andrew's probably going to be uh, you know going to be a defense prime, <laughs> not so distant future. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about those. I think they got Area 1, which was like the tube launch drone. Um, They have some kinetic interceptors and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not really sure. I don't think that this contract... They talked about the asset service for the DIU award of $99 They did not mention any of that for the SOCOM. I'm not sure if that's how they're running it. And I'm not really sure, you know, what that whole structure is. I think, you know, before that kind of asset service thing is a reality... 
you know, I'd be interested to see how that works out. But I think for the most part, they're probably just, you know, making self-investment already, right, with that venture capital, um, like that one million award or whatever comes out. It's not going to cover their costs, right? Um, they're they're still doing all this this improvement regardless, and that's kind of I think their vision, right? Like we're just going to build what works, and then we'll and it'll be so much better than everyone else. The government will have to eventually buy it from us. But one of the the kind of sad parts, you know, I I just looked up on FPDS and USA spending. Like, how many Prime awards did Anduril get? And it went from ninety million in FY twenty down to fifty four million in twenty one. And a lot of that was actually, you know, DHS was the big buyer um, back in twenty, and they're kind of tapering off. It's not really sure uh, what's happening there, but. You know, can DOD awards really start outstripping? Now, of course, that's not all of their sources of revenue, but it would be interesting to see, you know, like they, they kind of had that little downtime. Maybe it's <laughs> it's not actually down, you know, rev, total revenue, but uh, from from at least FPDS, they're not kind of getting those those big contract awards um, that, that they were getting like 20, 30, 40 million from DHS. Like, will those start happening in DOD land? So, yeah, so you're right. I guess you're right. Um, so this is not as a service. How did you see this? Because they, they talk about maintaining, updating it. Um, now I'm curious. I have to go back and look at the, the actual award. If it's not as a service, I really wonder how they're pricing this out. Um, are they going to continue to provide like their different systems that they have, Lattice, Anvil? Fox Sound, all these different systems, and they keep it up to date. If it's not as a service, that's going to be it's going to be interesting how they price that out and how they how they award that work. But yeah, yeah, this will be this will be one to watch though for sure. It's a, it's going to be a unique unique kind of uh, kind of effort. Well, you know, we have uh, an article later on on the whole Transdime price gouging kind of scandal. <laughs> but yeah, this seems to be a what I don't know how they price it. Um, Andorra seems to be a, a tough use case, right? Because kind of unlike Palantir, which had, you know, some commercial customers or at least in the Intel community, some of these buyers to establish previous prices, like Andorra's just going straight for it, right? Like we're going to build defense unique products that don't really have commercial equivalents and you can't just like look up a price list. But I don't think anybody can go ahead at this point and say Andorra is price gouging the government. <laughs> it looks like whatever Andorra is going to give them, the government's going to get like huge value for that because of all this private investment that's going into making the products rather than the government specifying it and then paying for the development and then paying for you know production and any improvements and making that all come from a requirement so so yeah i'll be interested to see um as as that moves forward and whether they really can transition to uh, as a service at scale i would love to see you know that that is the best right consumption-based solutions but like if if cloud hasn't really moved that way yet, which is like the classic use case for it, then it's kind of hard to see how it's going to branch into all of these other metered price, especially things that have like physical real world implications. Uh, so, you know, here's for hoping. Hey, one, one last thing on the, uh, on this one, on this contract, I looked it up and it looks like it's actually a follow on production OT. So kind of interesting that they did it as a follow on production. So they must've had, uh, must have had the, the prototyping uh, before this, and then they did a down select from the eleven vendors to the follow-on production contract. So, yeah, kind of interesting approach there. Because if you competed the OT originally, you wouldn't have to compete the follow-on production. But in this case, they competed both of them. Or maybe they didn't. No, maybe you're right. Maybe they didn't compete the prototyping, or maybe they didn't even do prototyping. I was when they said they did a follow-on production. I was assuming it was, it was. Uh, it was uncompetitive, but you're right. Maybe it's just a, maybe they just did prototyping and then they, this was all, yeah, this was competitive because they had the 11 vendors. So uh, that's too bad. I was thinking this was an example of like the, you know, sole source follow on if you put it in the, in the prototype contract, but no. <laughs> yeah. One not, day we'll, we'll yeah. see when, <laughs> when people, yeah, there's when not... people get comfortable making sole source phase three cyber or just follow on OTs. Like that will be, that'll be the day. Right. And if it's going to happen anywhere, yeah. maybe SOCOM was the place. I know there's not enough examples of those yet, but that makes sense. Why it was a billion dollars too, right? Because I think the the threshold where you just require an HCA or head of contracting activity approval, it's like up to a billion dollars. And I think 
they're kind of taking advantage of that <laughs> right <authority>. below it <laughs> right like that was the COVID in the COVID times they, they upped it to a billion dollars of to kind of expand that I'm not really sure <laughs> how much that had been taken advantage of all right the next one we got here China is still three or four generations away from developing latest semiconductor tech IDC says and so basically they're they're saying here that when at the leading edge of about 16 nanometers to 14 nanometers and below, you know, Taiwan, Korea, and the U.S. are really the only ones that are doing that. Even though China is starting to experiment, you know, they're mostly at the 28 nanometer. They're starting to experiment at the 14. But Taiwan and uh, South Korea in particular, they've already kind of moved on towards the, the 7 nanometer. So they're getting down uh, much smaller. But the tagline here, three or four generations, they're really looking 10 years out before the Chinese ecosystem can can do that uh, or like, I guess, build out the semiconductors themselves. And I kind of wonder here, you know, is that, you know, end to end development and production of semiconductors? Because one of the things I heard recently was that semiconductor technology like the supply chain is from like 50 different countries or something like that or like there's 50 different unique points of failure from several different countries on this chain so you know i don't even think right taiwan or uh, south korea right the a lot of those fabs and the lithography stuff is coming out of uh, the netherlands and all these other places so they don't even have like end-to-end uh, development of or in production of semiconductors tech they they just kind of like are stamping them out so I'd, I'd be interested to see what that means for china um and are they going for full integration and if they are that's probably very inefficient right <laughs> so efficiencies from trade yeah i mean we had talked about the the whole semiconductor industry because of the the chips act you know and, and the u.s trying to get in the same kind of business and, and yeah, Global Foundry and Intel had, you know, have some capabilities, but, you know, they're not generally not at the, the TSMC or some of those, you know, the really, uh, really, really small, highly capable chips. So, yeah, this is this kind of makes sense. Right. It's going to take them a while. They're they're focusing more on the, you know, the, the 28 and, and 14. What I thought was particularly interesting, though, was the fact that because they're operating at that sort of lower tech, you know, things that might be used um, for, you know, power management system, microcontrollers and, you know, refrigerators and different things that, that maybe don't need like the highest end, uh, you know, um, chips. That, 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 that uh, whole sector is, is something they're going to have to export to. So this is really one of those things where, where China, you know, I know it's Xi Jinping's goal to kind of be, in, you know, independent and, you know, self-sustaining and all this kind of thing. But this kind of shows just how hard that is because in order for them to get to the point where they can, you know, basically develop these more advanced chips and produce them at scale, they actually need to be able to sell the chips that they make now. So I thought that was a really interesting point that, hey, we actually do, you need, you know, U.S. partners, customers, European uh, customers, and even Taiwanese customers to be able to ramp that technology effectively so that they can bring down the cost structure that they need. So, yeah, it's it's a global supply chain. There's a lot of like, you know, a lot of exotic materials in some of these chips and they only come from certain places. And so, yeah, this is just one of those examples where, you know, China will never be completely self-sustaining and almost no country will be completely self-sustaining because this is a hard business and only you know so many countries are really good at it. Yeah, I guess that when if it comes to a shooting war, that's kind of frightening or something right like that's going to be a hard supply chain problem we might go to dumb things pretty fast in that respect and if china if china <laughs> takes over taiwan right like they got a bunch of fabs i'm, I'm sure those fabs would be destroyed by, by the time they get there but even if they had the fabs fully intact like what are they going to feed into it <laughs> right unless they they've re they've repatriated the rest of the supply chain well tsmc is building a um, a u.s based uh, factory i think it's I think it's going to north carolina or something oh i thought it was so. in arizona that's the I, or maybe, maybe, maybe arizona yeah maybe it's arizona but you know that's that's a good if they i think that initial factory wasn't going to produce the highest end chips but you know maybe that's like a a good starting point for them to kind of build out their u.s presence um it's probably not their ideal thing right they want they want to you know employ their the talent that they've built up over generations but 
you know, it's good to see that they're branching out a little, at least a little bit. So we're not constrained to that one island. <laughs> oh, you, I should grant, you know, these people from Taiwan that have the requisite skills, like immediate visas, like, here you go. Green cards for everybody. Come on over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Hand them out at the front door. Yeah. <laughs> you guys want one? You want one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back to Jatsy 2 land. Army IBCS passed F-35 sensor data to artillery system at Project Convergence for breaking defense. And IBCS, of course, is Integrated Air and Missile Defense Battle Command System. And that's made by Northrop. And the Army is kind of looking at that as their future air and missile defense backbone. And it will act, it's, I guess, like in order to do that, they already had to connect a bunch of disparate radars and, you know, have targeting data and pass that information to launchers. So, of course, this, I guess, seemed like a natural fit for kind of building out some of the, the rest of the JADC2 capability. Um, and this was an interesting little uh, demonstration here, passing F-35 sensor data to artilleries. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, what ABMS did in the early days where they kind of use machine learning and different sensors to shoot a cruise missile out of the sky with uh, with a howitzer. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this is going. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of interested because IBCS, it's kind of, I think it came out, it's been in development since 2009, so it's kind of a legacy system. Um, but, you know, I guess a lot has been built out from it and potentially it might be a good starting place. Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit, I mean, I know we're going to talk about, I think, Aegis next. It, it reminds me a little bit of that. It's like, you know, they've they spent billions of dollars. I forget how many billions of dollars went into this, but I want to say like three or four billion dollars went into um, IBCS. And so, you know, they've been working on this for over a decade, putting billions of dollars into it. They finally have like sort of figured out how to get some things to talk to each other and work together. And it's like a good platform for, you know, I know for a fact IBCS is going to be using kind of agile software development. It's like, you know, to, to kind of build out that capability further once you get the basics down and you can start to tie more and more data, you know, make sense of it. And so, yeah, it kind of does make sense that uh, um, they would kind of put more more emphasis on this, especially it looks like Northrop, they're, they're using an open architecture that is potentially going to allow satellite communications uh, to come into play and, and do remote, you know, remote engagements. Um and, and connect other battle space kind of elements to do to do JADC too. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, it looks promising. They're they're in development or they're uh, going into into low rate and four A production. So, um, so yeah, get this out there. Continue to iterate on it. You know, with uh, you know software releases and uh, hopefully it'll be uh, it'll be the backbone of uh, yeah, JADC too. Well, I guess it'll just be one of those backbones, or you know, yeah, one of the backbones. <laughs> what they call it here. Uh... <laughs> that this that this will actually be you know yeah so in the article here they call it a backbone for connecting these things in the aegis article they call it underpinning joint all domain command and control and then there's a later article for the space force data transport layer as the linchpin of jadc2 so we got all all these things like some way <laughs> underpinning jadc2 right you add all the pieces together and you get a robot soldier you know a couple <laughs> underpinnings here and a couple backbones here and then like you, well we we just talked about enduro i think enduro would think of themselves as basically building out the same backbone right passing sensor and, and shooter yeah, data, yeah. right? Like, cause like with right, this IBCS, yeah. right? You could, okay, I need some kind of sensor to target and track, you know, an incoming missile. And then I shoot something at it and you can see pretty quickly. It's like, well, the F-35 has some sensors and maybe we can use that in offensive rather than defensive kind of strategy there. So uh, let's just move on to the next one here. Evolution of the Aegis weapon system could underpin all, joint all domain operations. And so this one was actually a really interesting kind of long-form article here from Defense News, and they're talking about the Aegis Common Source Library, which kind of made its uh, debut in 2012 and has been kind of really expanded to a whole bunch of stuff. So it's not just for Aegis, which of course is ballistic missile defense, but um, all sorts of other types of things. Ship self-defense system that runs on aircraft carriers and amphibious ships is now using the Common Source Library um, that was actually... Raytheon originally developed some of that stuff and Lockheed later won it. So that, I guess, is is some of the reason. 
And then CSL is also um, getting run on the Combats 21 system, which runs on the Littoral Combat ships and the Constellation class frigate. And then there's all sorts of other stuff uh, that it's kind of making its way into, and it's not really clear how it's going to, you know, either eat up or combine with uh, the acoustic rapid COTS insertion for, you know, Navy underwater sensors and stuff like that. But a uh, bunch of interesting stuff. And again, like this is what we've been tracking, all these disparate ways that JADC2 is kind of coming together, you know, from legacy things under our noses. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's definitely clear that the, the primes and the different vendors have gotten the message that, um, you know, you, you need ways of, of making systems work work together uh, to be able to share data. So, yeah, there's some good, uh, you know, Lockheed kind of has a whole website on, you know, what basically this CSL and evolutionary design and how it allows you to integrate, you know, new capabilities across the fleet. And, you know, so this is definitely the, uh, you know, I think the, you know, one of the one of the kind of key keys to unlocking JADC2 is going to be these kinds of capabilities that allow different systems to, you know, you build something on one system. It's not unique and integrated so tightly that, you know, nobody else can use it, but that capability can kind of be ported into, into different ways. And I think we're seeing that, too, with like the unmanned surface vessels. And, you know, they're kind of taking advantage of some of these uh, some of these capabilities. And so, yeah, that's just, that just makes a lot of sense is this common source library. It enables software reuse and commonality. And so you can, uh, you can deploy technology across multiple platforms at once. So, yeah, really, uh, really good stuff. The, um, I did think, uh, yeah, talking about the MAN surface vessels, I thought that was interesting that they're also using this, this virtualized uh, Aegis, um, and they've deployed it as part of that whole, like, you know, four cell VLS where they can, launch things basically out of those containers uh, look like shipping containers and and they've also you know integrated some of the helicopters i thought that was kind of interesting too um as well as some of the mda assets like the terminal high altitude area defense battery and, and the pack three missile segment so yeah pretty uh seems like it's a pretty capable thing that the the navy's definitely all in on if they're using it on their their brand new frigate uh, as well as some of these other ships it sounds like they're uh, they're pretty bought into it. Yeah, so the next one we got here is uh, the Space Force data transport layers, the linchpin of JADC2. There's not really much that came out of this other than he likes to, he, the data transport layer that SDA has been working on is going to be um, a very integral part of, of the Space Force and what they're trying to do with JADC2. So did you did you get anything else out of that? What What's interesting here to you? Yeah, well, the only thing that was interesting was that he put such emphasis on it because I've, I've sort of felt like SDA has kind of been doing their own thing a little bit. I mean, the SDA takes their direction kind of from the space comm commander. So they're, you know, they're, they're supposed to have a little bit more of a direct connect. But, you know, I always kind of viewed that, uh, that they were a little bit out doing their own thing. And I, this is the first time I've really heard like Space Force leadership kind of say, this is a really key thing that we've got to have this. Um, so maybe that's good. Maybe that shows the SDA's sort of getting um, getting more into the common common thread of Space Force planning and they're becoming part of that, you know, architecture, the whole uh, Space Warfighting architecture. And uh, yeah, the fact that they're going to rely on that tracking layer, it sounds like they're going to have to make that work because if it's this critical of a, of a piece of JADC2, um, then it sounds like it's part of the, I think there's another article on the 23 Palm being, or the 23 PB being bold, if that is so bold as to maybe um, underfund or start to divest of other things that this would replace, um, or maybe not invest as heavily in programs that may be ongoing in lieu of this, then I think that will be uh, very, very interesting that um, they're giving this much credibility to SDA um, and, and relying so heavily on, on this capability. So, yeah. Well, I, you remember that. Uh... Kendall was kind of talking about accelerating SDA's integration to Space Force, so they'll be they'll be in charge of SDA soon enough, I I assume, right? I wonder what Derek Tournier is gonna do there if he's gonna stick around as through that integration or whether he's gonna kind of move on. But I feel like he's done a good job. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think he's done as much as he could. I think it will really depend on, um, and I forget the gentleman's name, but the 
the guy who's been nominated from a GA uh, or in a row to uh, to take over that role. Um, yeah, I think it probably depends on on how how they integrate SDA, how much autonomy they allow them to keep, and all that stuff. I really do hope uh, that they take it in steps and you know let them keep their autonomy, focus on these these uh, the tracking layer and the missile and the uh, transport layer, let them get those things right, and then figure out what the next steps are for SDA. Well, SDA seems like an odd duck in, in the uh, Space Force, right? Because it's kind of like enterprise capability, part of the enterprise core maybe, but then it does development and it also does production. So it's kind of overlapping with the development and production core. And then it's also somewhat overlapping with the Space Rapid Capabilities Office. So, you know, I, I wonder if SDA gets, you know, pulled into Space Force and all that, Will they still have this kind of giant $400 million program element where they can kind of do a lot underneath it? Or will a lot of that kind of be stripped away and they're kind of like portfolio architects more than like, let's go out and make some of this real? So when I think of Space Force and all the different elements, the way that I kind of hope it ends up is that the SDA is given that commercial focus, you know, go find the different ways to employ commercial technology. So there is a commercial... It's mainly focused on communication, but there is a commercial office within SSC. I sort of hope that SDA takes on more of that commercial. That way they can be the interface and they can sort of like bring all those assets to bear. And then let SSC focus on the more exotic stuff, the the things that are, you know, NC3 and some of the big, you know, comm satellites and next gen navigation and all that kind of stuff. Let them focus on the bigger and more exotic systems. Let, and then let the space RCO focus on that, that really COCOM commander responsive capability. So let them focus on like what used to be called tax sats, like, you know, being able to launch really fast uh, capabilities or, you know, strategic capabilities that you need to keep classified, um, you, you know, and stuff like that, secret weapons kind of almost kind of thing. Like let them focus on that kind of stuff, um, you know, so give them that really tight mission set. But I don't know. That's sort of how I hope it winds up is SDA doesn't go away completely because I think that will, I think that will be a disservice. I think SSC has shown that culturally they're not, they don't have that same mindset. So keep the culture of SDA alive, keep the culture of space RCO and leverage them in the right way. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, so the next one we got here is here's the armaments for the Navy's constellation class frigates. And so this one actually wasn't all that good of an article, but, you know, it's going to be armed with combat-capable warships, uh, with over-the-horizon naval strike missiles, rolling airframe missiles. Of course, those are um, surface-to-air. And then the Mark 110 57-millimeter gun. And I guess the, the one thing that we kind of keep hearing with the Constellation class is that it's going to have 32 uh, vertical launch system cells. Uh, for missiles, and I guess they'll have an additional 12 naval strike missiles kind of like in those containerized things on, on top of uh, the deck. But when you like kind of compare that to the Burks, which had 90 to 96 VLSs, depending on, on the flight, uh, that's kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're not replacing a lot of the combat capability that will come from, you know, I guess the divestitures of those uh, Ticonderoga-class cruisers, which themselves had like 100 and something missiles and of course the chinese are putting out their type 55 destroyers which are larger than burks and have 112 vls's so not everything is just counting vls's right but insofar as that's what we're doing here uh, it looks like you know the constellation class will be a little bit undergunned um compared to some of its competitors but that's yeah but at the same time it looks like um it looks like the primary role, if you can trust the kind of how this article's framed, that the primary role of it is really just to free up some of those, you know, uh, some of those other capabilities like the destroyers, you know, that that are kind of, you know, stacked with weapons and can, you know, launch tomahawks and all kinds of other things. So, you know, it sort of sounds to me like that, you know, this is going to do mainly escort mission. Um, it's going to, you know, do some lighter lighter kind of combat stuff might do some submarine hunting or something, but it's, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be the, the vessel you turn to, to kind of launch all of the, you know, the really capable stuff and to be in the thick of it, you know, it's going to be probably more on the periphery. So that's, that's got a, what I took away from it. Yeah. 
I I suppose that's what they want to say. If that's the truth and that's the way they really want to do it, hopefully they kind of lock down the design, something relatively close to the parent, and they don't try to, you know, hey, this is this is the surface vessel we got, and we're not going to get a DDX, you know, in by 2025 or 2027, whenever they want. So um, let's just stick everything on this Constellation class, and, you know, <laughs> that, that might happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, especially, well, especially if, uh, because, like, the, I guess this is supposed to fill fill the gap between the, the LCS and kind of the DDG-1000 and some of the other cruisers. Like, yeah, you can see it if, like, some of the other stuff, LCS starts to fall away, doesn't get funding, DDG doesn't get the numbers they want. You know, you can see the Navy going, well, hey, we do have this frigate we could you know, stick 25 new things on. So, yeah, that will have to, we'll have to manage that if other... Other some of the other uh, vessels don't don't pan out as intended. Or flight flight four of the Burks, right? And maybe we'll just get more of those. But they didn't want a big buy of the constellations. I think it was just sixteen, right? Something like that. So uh, maybe they will extend that out. Uh, next one we got multi-domain unmanned systems for future warfare at the tactical edge from Breaking Defense. Uh, this had a bunch of stuff in it, but one thing that caught my eye was optionally manned fighting vehicle MFV will not have direct line of sight fire weapons like a cannon or a machine gun rather it'll have a battery of switchblade 300 and 600 loitering missiles that can be fired without even seeing the enemy and they can fly 100 plus kilometers identify a target and engage beyond visual line of sight and then another example of this is putting switchblades onto kratos's mako utap 22 uh drone which is kind of part of air force's skyborg program so that was pretty interesting. I, it kind of reminded me of, you know, what they said in Vietnam, like we're not going to need aircraft with uh, a gun on it because we'll have missiles. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still feel like OMFV probably needs at least some kind of line of sight fire weapon, you know. But maybe that's just my predilections or I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you're I don't know if you're a Luddite, but I mean. I think it will have to be used in probably the right situations. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like the way the CIO, the CEO in this article was talking about it is, you know, primarily take out like air defense systems, things that are very clearly, um, you know, military. I think if you started to get into a domain where there was like civilian casualties and, you know, things that needed, um, you know, probably needed some type of, uh, you know, engagement review to make sure, you know, there wasn't going to be, kind of, you know, a casualty thing and, and was it worth it? Is it going to achieve? What's it, what effects can achieve? So yeah, it's not going to go after those kind of targets, but yeah, you could definitely see it, um, you know, being one of those things that can, if it can target, if it has enough capability to target, um, you know, clearly a tank or clearly a, you know, uh, air defense radar or something, um, I could see, I could see it probably, you know, being used in that way and just, Okay. Yep. You can you can confirm confirm that that's the target. Go take it out. Um, and it looks like it's been around for a little while too. Like it was, this was originally like an AFSOC thing, and then uh, then the army picked it up. So it's been it's actually been in use for a while. Been in use since I think like 2011. Um, and the the Marines have tested it out of an Osprey. And so this isn't like a this isn't the first first uh, first time it's. It's kind of gotten some 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 attention and it's probably been through a lot of iterations and, and, and improved and it definitely has been upgraded a number of times. So the the, the larger 600 loitering munition is about 50 pounds. Uh, it's still man portable, but you know it, it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit heavier. It has a little bit more of a of a pack. So yeah, so, yeah, I can I can see this being used. So back to what you were talking about before, Space Force submitting a bold budget request for 23. No details, though. So that's that's what we got. But, you know, one interesting thing here is Space Force wanted a 13% bump in FY22. So this CR is really kind of hurting the Space Force because they were looking for a, a pretty sizable increase in 22. And it's not really clear what's going to happen with that CR, but they're kind of freezing their programs here at the 2021 levels. So... Full year CR could really hurt the Space Force if it's not already hurting them with new starts and the likes. So any other final things on Space Force budget? The only thing that I took away that was encouraging was the fact that he said uh, there's a lot of new starts coming down. So to me, that means um, 
you know, that it's not just a continuation of some of those really large programs that, you know, I've been a little bit critical of just because, you know, I've, I've been hoping that they would go after, um, you know, things in more modern, you know, ways with commercial technology. So it sounds like, uh, sounds like there'll be at least a, a bunch of new stuff. So we can kind of uh, wait to see what that looks like. New software factory aims to digitally transform AFRL from Air Force Material Command. And so we got Hangar 18 here, which is joining 16 other Air Force software factories uh, that has sprung up across the nation. And this one, of course, is in Dayton. And it's at Wright, Wright Pat Air Force Base. I guess Hangar 18 is homage to where, I guess, the Roswell crash, right? <laughs> like the, the Roswell materials were taken from roswell to hangar 18 out there (laughs) (laughs) so it's kind of funny that that's the the name they chose they got a cool little logo to go with it Uh, and then there's kind of like some some boilerplate language here uh one thing that they say quote it's not enough for us to have unlimited rights to the data that's not sufficient we have to own the data the process is in the stack we need to better control the technology that houses the data and then second, we need to do uh, agile practices and, and DevSecOps. So there wasn't really too much on what they were doing. I kind of looked a little bit into them. It looked like they were doing some kind of collaborative tool type stuff. So pretty low end, you know, software applications, which kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're going to start out, that's the, probably where you should start. But, you know, here's, here's more on the, the software factories, it looks like. They're still springing up. And I guess it's we'll wait to see, you know, will they be protected? Will they be able to grow and do things uh, with Roper out and with Nick Shalon out? Yeah, I, I, I looked through. They actually have a brief that so they go through some stuff. The one thing I do like about them is that they actually are talking about digital engineering. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff coming out now on digital engineering. You're going to see, well, I mean, programs are probably going to actually, you know, be required to, include a digital engineering strategy in their in their acquisition strategy and say, you know, here's how we will use digital engineering. We will, you know, you don't need to use digital engineering for every aspect of a system, but, you know, they may have to articulate, you know, here are the aspects of the system where we're going to model these and we think we can gain, you know, benefits by doing this. Um, I think there's going to be a lot in the near future about how to integrate some of those, you know, the model-based engineering, systems engineering with agile software factories and how you use those to use those together uh, in more effective ways. But there's this ton of training uh, that the, the collective acquisition workforce needs. And so one of the things I noticed in their slide deck is they are very focused on training. So yeah, a lot of it is hype. It sort of sounds like right now they're saying a lot of good stuff, you know, they're going to have to prove out how much they can actually accomplish. But I do like that part that, you know, helping the acquisition workforce get that training on digital engineering, help them understand how to make the trade-offs on, uh, you know, where to use what, when, uh, how to stand up, maybe some just some basic, you know, kind of software uh, pieces. If you don't have just a software program, but you you know you know in the future you're going to be, you know, be delivering more to enhance some of the hardware you're delivering. So if they can even make some progress around the edges of that, that would be huge. So so yeah, uh, give them a chance and see what they can do. Last one we'll do. New bill aims to cut the price of spare parts for DOD Defense News. And this is talking about another Inspector General report and another hearing on the Transdime business model and price gouging. So back in 2019, they had a series of uh, of hearings on this uh, where Transdime was uh, apparently charging, you know, prices that resulted in thousands of percent profit. Uh, and then this one seems to be covering the exact same time frame. So they looked at more contracts, maybe different contracts. I'm not really sure exactly what that was, but it was still from the 2017 to 2019 time frame. And they made excess profits on 105 spare parts out of 150 contracts. And what the DODIG here was saying was that, you know, like they'll look at a specific, you know, product and they'd be like, hey, look, you, <laughs> this cost you $150 to make and you're charging $7,000 for it. And so, you know, we got a, a bunch of quotes here where they're kind of saying, uh, well, they're, they're really taking adva- advantage of the, the taxpayer. They're kind of hiding behind information. They're not sharing, you know, uncertified cost or pricing data to kind of get at what it's a fair and reasonable price. Whereas the company, Transdime, is kind of saying, 
well, we don't we don't agree with your audit and the way that you did the audit. And when you look at all the contracts you um, went through on like the the weighted average was just 37 percent profit on all those contracts. So we just disagreed with how you came about doing a lot of that um, auditing. And in fact, we gave a 25 percent discount to the price of the exact same things that we sell to commercial companies. And so for me, it was a little bit hard to kind of snuff out what was actually going on here. It looks like, you know, uh, Transdime was doing some shady dealings. They were, of course, you know, buying up a bunch of uh, companies that and then trying to turn them into sole source suppliers and potentially kind of, you know, get into these sole source situations and and drive up prices. But of course, what's also going on with the commercial sector, apparently American Airlines is getting really terrible deals as well if for the same thing they're getting you know higher prices than the dod's paying for that so you know this is this is going to be one that i think is going to be playing out for some time but uh you know it just seems to never go away right yeah and i think the in this article ndia actually comes out which i wasn't sure where they were going to stand on this because for one it's most of the ndia you know most of the you know, companies that do business with DOD are, are just used to providing, you know, certified cost and pricing data or, you know, having a competition, you know, where they, where they have to compete for, um, compete for, for, for uh, uh, programs or projects. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure where they came out, but I think their point was really valid. It's like the focus of DOD and I think Congress, you know, along with that, shouldn't be so much on the fact that Transdine, uh, you know, maybe made 25% or 30% or 40% profit, um, you know, maybe that is reasonable for the risk that they took in buying out these companies and, uh, you know, buying the parts or, you know, buying the, the knowledge base. Um, but more about, you know, the DOD needs to be better about making sure they have adequate supply chains. And so, you know, I think Transdine basically identified a problem that DOD was ignoring a huge part of the supply chain that was, you know, that they actually needed for, for legacy uh, platforms and they probably shouldn't pay more attention. So uh, I think that probably should be the focus out of this. And I hope, I hope it ends because it sort of sounds like Congress has taken this to the next level and it's going to require a deeper dive into it. And it's like, you know, I think you can, I think we already beat up on trans time enough. Like they already paid money back. Um, let's, let's end this here and then move on and actually solve the root cause of the problem. Yeah, some of the uh, there was definitely like kind of two diverging opinions. It seemed like I, when I listened to the hearing that like some people were just like, man, this is terrible. We need more. We need to require that they comply with uncertified cost data because I guess they were giving the pricing data. Right. They were saying this is what uh, and it wasn't clear how many of those items were exactly the same that they sell to commercial and how many were of a type or different or changed in some way. Uh, but some of the things that they talked about were getting IP for the parts. But of course, uh, a lot of that, those decisions were made at, when the program started. So some of these things are like C5 and T38s and even the, the F5. <laughs> and it's just like, well, that that's too late and uh, might be cost prohibitive to go after all that kind of stuff. Reverse engineering parts, bulk buying, of course, you know, like everyone talks about this and Transdime was saying you order one part, you know, every five years that, and you're interrupting our production line. Of course it costs quite a bit to go do that. Competition's an obvious one, but no one really had any kinds of solves there. Um, some, some Congress members are saying we need to look at the acquisition process as to how we got into this place. And then the DOD IG actually had an interesting idea, which was like the OEM should kind of like revoke their licenses and just do it themselves. And that's kind of hard for me. To believe that the OEMs will do it uh, very cheaply, you know, maybe they can show all this kind of cost data for it, but I'm not really sure whether they can do it cheaper, right? Um, so, well, I think your point, your point was really valid. Is like the low cost. I was surprised about that too, because initially when I first, you know, first heard about, you know, the profit, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, they bought up a bunch of spare parts, and now they're just, you know, sort of trying to maximize, almost sort of like a, uh, you, you know, the guy, the farmer bro guy or whatever. And so, you know, that's kind of how the lens I was viewing it through. But after looking at it more, it sort of sounds like, you know, DED actually should have been happy that Transdime was doing this because the primes, luckily, you know, the OEMs probably would have been like, um, yeah, we have a minimum order quantity. So 
we'd love to make parts for you. How about we make a thousand of them uh, as our minimum? Because I mean, I've seen that happen multiple times where if we wanted to, we wanted to go, you know, do an order and they're like, we have a minimum buy. We're not going to do it for five parts. We're not going to stand up this whole, you know, the whole thing and get all the labor in place and everything else. We want you to buy, you know, X number. So they're kind of lucky Transdime actually did it for the really small quantities that they asked for. I, I had, I didn't realize that piece until I read more into this. Yeah. Some of them, like one of them here, like some of it just doesn't really make sense to me. Cause they're like, well, it costs Transdime $173 to produce this thing for a T38 Talon and, and a Freedom F5. And it's a, uh, what is this? A disconnect coupling. Um, and they said it was 173. I mean, it's a small kind of manufactured part. But like, what can you do for $173? That's one hour fully burdened of someone's time, right? Like you can't even interact with the government on a contract for $173. So I, I always just wonder like, you know, I, who knows what they're, I think it just, in my view, like it's kind of corrupt to think that there is a literal cost of something um, as opposed to like, well, there's all sorts of cross subsidies and you know, all this overhead, it's hard to know what the absorption rates are and what, where things really went. Of course, like a big prime has all these cost systems and it costs them hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, to like make these cost systems that these Transdime subsidiaries probably just don't have. So I, I, I don't know, like it's, it's hard to know what the truth of the matter is here. Um, but there's something to be said for, we need to drive these costs down, right? Like, you know, paying $7,000 for this little part, like it just doesn't, you know, even if that's what United Airlines is paying, you know, we just need to be able to get get to a better place in, in terms of in terms of pricing. And some of that might be, you know, economic order quantities. But I can't imagine that that's the, you know, certified cost or pricing data and some of this stuff we've been talking about since the 60s and the 80s. We had the Grace Commission. We've gone through these these motions all the time. What is the actual like solve? I have no idea. <laughs> I would love I would love to know. But well, well, especially for things that I mean, it's one thing when you're producing a an item that, you know, has a general configuration, maybe it changes a little bit, but and you can actually see the learning curve because you're ordering, you, you know, it's like missiles or, you know, F-35s or whatever. Like you can see over time that like, OK, there's efficiencies they're getting, you know, there's cost long term cost agreements that, you know, these vendors are getting these things for cheaper uh, they're getting more productive, blah, blah, blah. And you can see it. That's one thing. I think in those cases where it's a military unique item and you're seeing, and you've done, you've done all the investment, the government's paid for all the investments, then, then you can, you can kind of get some of those efficiencies. But for something like this, where any other cases, right? Like things that are less are harder to put a tangible thing on and to track over time. So I think of AI, I think AI is going to be one of those things where like DOD is going to really have to get their head around the value versus the cost where, hey, if I can develop this super sweet algorithm that allows you to do all kinds of cool stuff, but maybe it only took me 5,000 labor hours, you know, and, a, a, you know, $10 million to develop, but I'm going to give you a license for a million dollars a year. I, I could see some in the government saying that's not fair because you're going to get a lot more than what it costs you to pay for it. Well, if, if it's worth that capability, we should be happy to pay for it. If it's if there's not if there's not an other an easier way of doing it, or you know that is of such value to us that that price is that's like you know we'll we'll pay it, then then we should we should buy it and be happy that we can we can get it. And if we no longer need it, we stop buying it. But yeah, we're really going to have to get our head around value um, going forward because there's going to be a lot of intangible things that are going to be hard to to put a production you know manufacturing price tag on. And value, of course, is a socially constructed concept, right? So that, again, gets back to competition and alternatives and understanding um, what those what those trade-offs are. And some of it might just be also, like, do you know what the thing is in the real world, right? Like, if a contracting officer or whoever's buying it doesn't know within a 10x range what this price should be, then there's there's some kind of problem, right? And it feels like with some of these things, you don't need to buy the IP, just like, you already have omit data and form fit function data. Just do like a 3D scan of the thing and then just like 3D print it, aren't they? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. That is where we need to get to, isn't it? It's like, like, oh, okay, we need a part. Just like, yeah, go stand up a huge manufacturing 
3D manufacturing facility and manufacture these things. And, uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure there's lots of issues uh, going down that path too, but uh, hopefully, you know, this, I mean, the, the more we can drive down a sustainment, the more that we can invest in the future and the more we can like grow the capabilities. So um, there's no reason 70% of costs are in sustainment and they would just keep growing and growing and growing if we didn't like let readiness fall, right? So, so we need to figure that out at some point. Let's modernize faster than we have to sustain and then that'll solve all of our problems. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, yeah, there's all sorts of issues there too. How can we get our cycle well, what do you mean? down? <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah no that's exactly right but if we if we get to that point where the cycle times are so fast and we're continuing to you know put capability out in the field we're like you, you we don't even need dms we don't need to worry about dms anymore because we're replacing it with the next greatest thing you know and replacing sensors as soon as a something better is on the market you know i i look forward to that day one day me too and that's all we got time for this week we'll talk to you next time thanks matt thanks sir this concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.